Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for listening to the Girls Who VC podcast. Girls Who VC is the first organization dedicated to bringing young women into venture capital. My name is Isabella Mandis, and I'm the founder and CEO of Girls Who VC. On this episode, I'm very excited to introduce the founders of Springbank Capital, Courtney Limekuller and Alana Berkowitz, who talk about their respective backgrounds, Courtney from more of the financial services side and Alana from more of the consulting side, but also an entrepreneur and working in policy, and how they both came together to create the fund and are now supporting the mission of supporting the needs of women and working families. I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much, Courtney and Alana, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you being here and talking about your experiences. Thanks for oh, having us. We're you. so happy to be here. Thanks for asking us. So could you start off by telling us each a little bit about yourselves? Sure. I can go first. This is Courtney. So like you, Isabella, I went to Harvard undergrad, which I really love. So it's awesome to be on your podcast and hopefully talking to some other young women who are at Harvard and figuring out what to do with their careers. So this is super exciting for me. I, unlike you though, left Harvard and went down a really traditional path and spent basically my whole career in financial services, started off as a banker, kind of quickly really got into fintech actually. And that took me to the New York Stock Exchange, which at the time was a mutual owned by its members. And I made the leap just thinking something really interesting would happen and it did. So I was there and got to work on taking the company public and then ended up staying for almost 10 years and ran strategy and M&A, which was a really fun and exciting job. And we did a lot of tech acquisitions. So always was staying close to tech and innovation, even at a really old 200-year-old company or whatever it was. And then after that, we sold the business and I became the chief financial officer of Marsh, which is a really huge commercial insurance broker that serves really large public companies with their insurance needs. And I did that for about four years, which was, again, a pretty traditional job, but also spent a lot of time on insure tech, which was just getting going then. And then left in 2017, just thinking I wanted to get back to something more nimble. I wanted to feel like I was maybe working on things that had a more immediate and direct impact on things I cared about. And it was a bit of a winding path from there, which we can talk about, but ended up founding Springbank with Alana and Jen, our third partner. Great. This is Alana. I can go next. And sorry if I sound weird. I feel that my daughter may have given me strep throat, which I guess we'll <laughs> see how things evolve over the next 24 hours, but I'm extra fun right now. I had a very different path. I went to Brown undergrad. I majored in modern culture and media with a focus in post-colonial literature, film, and theory. As one does, <laughs> and it totally rolled and sharpened my EQ and analytics mind. And I spent my career mostly in impact work. Prior to going to business school, I helped start a couple of programs within what is now a very large think tank in Washington, D.C., but at the time was a not large think tank in Washington, D.C., and actually, the point at which I applied to business school a little bit with the sense that having spent so much time in different kinds of activist organizations and small progressive startups and social enterprises, we were all flying by the seat of our pants. And I often had this feeling of there must be some structure to how one manages crazy ideas and people who are all committed to, to change making and somehow got the notion to go to business school, which at the time, I truly did not know a soul who had gone to business school when I went, but I went to HBS and did a joint degree with the Kennedy School because I can't get public policy out of my veins and I never will. I was in the Obama administration for the first two years. I was one of the first couple hundred tech folks in the administration. 
and I worked across actual policymaking, programmatic stuff, and sort of doing whatever needed to be done. I also got to serve on the Obama-Biden transition team. And if anyone ever has the interest, transition teams are like the fun and wild startup startup time of an administration where you actually have to hire more rapidly than probably any startup on the planet. And it's a ton of fun. Spent time in McKinsey's tech media telecom practice for a couple of years and used that time to travel really extensively which I always highly encourage. So I work in 13 countries in less than three years, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa doing tech work, but not entirely. And then when at the point at which Courtney and I first started jamming on the idea for Springbank, I was consulting and I was investing and advising out of Eric Schmidt's family office, the former Google CEO via Schmidt Futures. And I'm a Brooklyn mom. And I think that is me, mostly. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys, for that background. So, Courtney, as you mentioned, you started your career in the financial services industry. What insights did you gain from that that you now you've been able to apply to the BC space? I did lots of great insights, actually. I think financial services is a really interesting training ground and the kind of financial plumbing obviously underlies almost everything that we do, for better or worse. I think a couple specific things that have been helpful as we think about investing in really young companies now and helping them position and grow. A lot of them have a B2B go-to-market. And I think one thing is I spent a lot of time in my career trying to figure out like how established companies and established industries like adopt and absorb tech, which is incredibly hard and slow, both on the sort of enterprise tech side, like even moving a new email server is a massive undertaking. And then also thinking about how they adopt and push tech and their kind of external, maybe customer facing roles. And so really having a very well-developed understanding of when and how, and often how hard that is, I think has been really helpful in understanding there's lots of really good new ideas out there. Often figuring out what to do is usually not the hard thing. And I say this all the time, especially in insurance, there's Lots and lots of opportunity for tech to improve the way that business functions. I think we could say the same for areas like healthcare and education and other industries, which we know are still pretty old in the way they do things. So often understanding what needs to be done is pretty easy and you can come up with lots of great ideas, but actually figuring out how to do it is really hard, how to implement technology change, how to get a company or an individual worker or an individual customer to actually start to adopt and use technology differently is really hard. And that's the reason why a lot of these industries are really slow. Other things I've really learned is thinking about how strategics, so the big established companies who are often the buyers of young companies and VC exits, just having run M&A for a long time, I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of how companies think about partnerships, minority investments, and M&A, and they all have really different elements to them. And even understanding when it comes down to who are the specific individuals within the organization, how much power do they probably have? How do they make decisions? How do they get compensated? Like that level of detail is actually pretty important when you're thinking about who's going to buy this company. Figuring out your exit is a huge part of the investment analysis. And so having a really good understanding of why companies engage in M&A and how a successful outcome comes about has been pretty helpful. And then the third thing is not specific to financial services, but just having spent a lot of time inside big companies and medium-sized companies and managing pretty large functions. I think that is a skill set which is 
sometimes less prevalent within venture. You have people who are great investors and who have an unbelievable ability to see the future or see how a strategy might emerge, but maybe have less experience actually running companies, building organizations, doing a performance review process, figuring out a staffing model, whatever it might be. And also the fact that, and this comes up in M&A all the time and the euphemism people use is social issues. And what they mean is like, you have two CEOs and neither of them wants to give up their job. So even though this merger makes a ton of sense, it's not going to happen, right? And those sorts of things are usually the sticking point. Almost everything else can get figured out. You can manage things with money. You can do great due diligence. You can buy insurance against risk. There's lots of things you can do. But often like those human and social issues are the reason why something works or doesn't work. And that's obviously a really big deal in venture as well. Thinking about the founding team, how are they getting along? How much does everyone own? How do they resolve differences? How do they think about their titles? I think these are things often people can kick the can on, but become really big and sometimes existential issues for organizations of all sizes, like even huge, enormous banks have issues because of people issues. So just having had some exposure to that, I think is also pretty helpful. Nalana, you have experiences not only in consulting, like you said, but also are a serial entrepreneur and also worked in policy. So how do you balance all your different interests? It's a good question. This is the closest I've come to a job that packs them all in. So one is given the kind of businesses we invest in, having a sort of both a policy perspective, so understanding when there's head, like what kinds of headwinds and tailwinds different kinds of businesses might be encountering, being able to see around the corners of how policy might be reshaping these businesses, finding where there's hidden pots of gold at the end of the rainbow of various obscure government programs. That's all stuff that I really enjoy. And I think increasingly we're seeing this now that I think the next generation of category defining businesses in tech will all in some way be shaped by public policy, right? Whether it's the kind of climate companies that are emerging and being capitalized post the Inflation Reduction Act, which obviously had quite a bit of climate spend in it, whether it's how now we're seeing some of the impacts of pandemic era rulings that made it easier for folks to access telemedicine. People are now reconsidering what should and should not be made permanent, could have huge impacts in the digital health space. There's sort of tons of examples of this up and down our thesis. So I think being comfortable in that space and being able to help founders see what's around the corners is certainly useful. I think on the on the multi-hyphenate interest side, I'll just say one of the things that makes venture feel like a huge privilege, where sometimes Cordy and I'll say to each other, I can't believe this is our job, is in the course of a day, I was on an airplane to Minnesota on Friday and I downloaded a bunch of reading relevant to different companies that we were diligent saying it was everything from I realize this might not sound exciting and sexy at all, but to a really wonky 40-page healthcare policy paper for me to understand this business I'm really excited about that I tore through to something about digitally native third spaces and like Gen Z avatar creation to a whole bunch of other things in between. So I think venture honors and celebrates the insatiably curious. In venture, as in many industries, there can be a decent amount of group think, right? Everyone socializes with each other and talks about a lot of the same deals. And I think we're certainly still developing this for ourselves, but I think it's a lot harder to develop meaningful perspective and conviction from from a cold start, right? Versus people who've been engaged for years just because they naturally can't stop reading and obsessing about a certain issue. And part of it too, there's certainly great firms we admire a ton who are pre-seed generalists or seed generalists. We obviously take a much more thesis-driven approach, which means that 
it is part of our job to just like wonk out on things that are specific to our thesis around infrastructure for working women and families, around inclusive future of work, care economy, et cetera. So I get to scratch all of those itches. And I will also put in a plug. I, I do not find the like New York versus Bay Area in tech a particularly useful conversation in part because they're both amazing and critical like engines of innovation. Um, but as a lifelong diehard New York City public school New Yorker who will never leave this place, I think that's part of what's fun about New York is in part because a lot of the founders come from the industries that are around them in the city here, right? Like healthcare, media, marketing, fashion, finance. Like you have a really weird cross section of founders coming from different backgrounds, which I think is really fun. Yeah, that's awesome. And can you both talk to how you became interested in venture capital and why you decided to partner and create SpringBrink? Sure, I can start. We can both talk. We came to it, as we discussed, through yeah. pretty different journeys. I guess from my perspective, I left my job at Marsh, as I said, I was interested in figuring out what next that would feel more nimble, more entrepreneurial, mm-hmm. more impactful. Not to say I didn't want to make money in returns, which of course I did. But when I left and was starting to think about what to do, one thing that was really on my radar screen was just seeing how much effort and intent there was, particularly in the corporate world where I came from, to attract and retain women and to figure out how do we have more women reaching higher levels of the organization. And it felt like that was, of course, a very important objective, but one where we were maybe not bringing the right tools to the fight. And I say that because my perception, having spent time in a couple of big companies, was just they were pretty rigid. Obviously, past post-COVID, they've become a little bit more flexible, but they were pretty rigid. And it meant that, to me, a big part of what caused a lot of women to drop off the path was really around practical and logistical support for living within that kind of rigid world of corporate. So meetings at a particular time, travel, or dinners, whatever it was. And that women and other caregivers who, by the way, make up about three quarters of the workforce. Most people think, when they think about care, they think about, oh, a new mom. And the truth is there are lots of new dads as well. There are lots of people caring for kids with long chronic disease or aging parents. And so when we look at the workforce, it's probably somewhere between two thirds and three quarters of them are caregivers. And that is a major sticking point in terms of getting women and caregivers to persist and quote unquote, climb the ladder. And when it came to managing those responsibilities, women and caregivers are told like they're on their own. It didn't feel like something that companies were responsible for. The way they're responsible for your retirement, they put money into your 401k. They're responsible for your healthcare. They give you healthcare in most cases. They didn't feel responsible for helping you with the caregiving responsibilities, which were diametrically opposed to the rigid environment of corporate. And so I got really fixated on that versus what I saw, which was a lot of focus on mentoring or representation or networking or coaching. Let us teach you how to negotiate your comp. And I'm sure all those things are really helpful, but I felt like they were around the fringes. And so what I got really interested in was there's probably a whole category of stuff here that we can build that would be practically and logistically helpful to women and caregivers for the specific needs that prevent them from fitting into the mold of the way most of our companies and frankly, also the government and other professions work. And the more 
you go even to areas where women predominate, think about education, think about hospitality, think about retail, think about healthcare. Like these are industries where women predominate. These are jobs that are pretty rigid. Like you have to be in the classroom every single day. You have to be on your shift every single day. And so those, the sort of conflict between your caregiving responsibilities and your professional track just becomes more and more acute and it becomes interesting and more and more acute in areas where actually women and caregivers are the more predominant workers. So it was like a real head scratcher. So when I looked at the investment world, it was focused on female founders, which is obviously awesome. We have lots and lots of female founders in our portfolio. We consider ourselves female founders. So we are really bullish on more money to female founders, of course, but it felt like that was not going to actually solve the problem that I was seeing. And then when I looked at how public markets investing, thinking about addressing gender or gender lens investing, they were looking at metrics like how many women are on the board, right? And they would build an investment product or an ETF that would say, okay, we're only going to have companies that have more than 50% of their board members are women. And then people can invest in those companies. And that's the way of expressing kind of gender lens investing. And that's the way we'll put pressure on companies. And that also felt like it wasn't going to work because representation is very helpful, of course, and important, but not sufficient, right? That you can point to me and say, look at Courtney, she's the CFO, right? But if you don't give the supports to help other people get to that point, it doesn't really matter whether I'm the CFO or anyone else's. And so that was how I came to venture was a bit accidental. It wasn't like, I know, let me be a venture capitalist. It was a little bit more there's a whole class of businesses that need to get built here and there needs to be company formation and we need to direct investment dollars and it is not happening. And I spent a long time just hunting around thinking someone must be investing in this stuff and could not find it. And that's when Jen, who was a friend of mine from college, we both went to Harvard, we played lacrosse there. So we've known each other for a long time. And I was balancing it around with Jen and she said, this is obviously a really big, complicated problem and it touches private sector, it touches the public sector, it touches advocacy. It's really multifaceted. You should really talk to Alana. And so she introduced me to Alana, who had been noodling something very similar, but from a different direction. And that's how we all got going. I think Courtney covered covered the details. Obviously, I came at the thesis from a slightly different angle, more around the sense of having been in, in these policy and politics and advocacy worlds and felt things were changing, but not fast enough and that it took entrepreneurs rising to, to meet the moment and meet opportunities that we wanted to back. But maybe I'll say something else in terms of getting started. So she, Courtney mentioned how we were reconnected and I'd gone to grad school with her husband and on the public policy side of, of things. And I think one thing that has been interesting is Courtney and I are incredibly different. So I figure you have probably mostly an audience of younger listeners who might be thinking through who they think of as co-founders, partners, whether they're trying to start a fund or a company or whatever. The truth is there's almost no one more different for me that I could have started this company. <laughs> which I say like, yin and yang here. Yeah, yep. like, I say with like the truly deepest love in my heart. And I think that, as, and I think the fact that we are such a good and solid and productive partnership has given me a lot of reflection about maybe times earlier in my career where I opted to collaborate with folks who maybe were more similar to me. So it felt more comfort zone. Like there was already this shared natural language. 
And then of course we had all the same strengths and of course all the same weaknesses. And so anyway, so I think it took a couple of cracks at finding the people I meant to collaborate with to find a partnership that had that yin and yang. But I, I actually think it's pretty essential to success in venture, both because frankly, there's just a lot of different activities. Like I like to do a lot more of the sort of top of the funnel sourcing. If Courtney never had to go to another cocktail party, she'd be pretty thrilled about it. Obviously, having a former like high-level CFO in the form of Courtney on your team when you are running a venture capital firm in a wild financial environment is very useful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that was one of our big, or at least for me, one of the big lessons and things that I think in my 20s, I might not have been smart enough to realize that I should not start a business with someone who is very similar to myself. I obviously agree completely with what I want to say. And, and I think sometimes this, that element gets lost in the diversity conversation. Um, the diversity includes so many different factors and lived experiences, including just like how your brain works and introverts and extroverts and your different spikes and strengths. And I think it is just a really good example of the breadth of of like advantage and delight that can come from diversity in all of its forms, which has been awesome. And Alana, you touched upon sourcing. Can you guys talk more about what your investment process looks like starting from sourcing potential deals to conducting due diligence and making investment decisions? Sure. Our sourcing comes from all over the place. The whole team has really different networks across prior jobs, prior schools, like I've been kicking, I've been kicking around New York and New York tech forever and just refused to leave. I think we, so we have those different elements. And then as we were getting our start, building our track record to start the fund, we were actually doing deal by deal SPVs. And we had a lot of amazing handpicked folks investing in those deal by deal SPVs, many of whom are now investors in our fund, but a lot of them are very active operators and angels as well who stayed in our corner. So we see a lot of deal flow through them and through our community of founders. I think also there's quite a bit of mission as magnet here. I think there's a lot of founders who either for inspiring reasons and practical reasons at the same time want to have investors in their corner who get what they're about, right? Either because they're like, oh, cool, you actually know the policymaker who's going to be rewriting this thing that is going to impact my business. Oh, you actually need to know the chief people officer of this huge company who I'm going in front of to sell my product. Great. And sometimes it's just, I think, versus some generalist funds, I think we come in with a lot of empathy and knowledge and passion for the space. And it really draws people to us inbound. Anything else you would add on that, Courtney? I think just the, maybe the one other thing is we have been really lucky to have partnerships with folks that are more on the advocacy side. We have a great partnership with Melinda Gates's family office called Pivotal Ventures. You know, I think just really taking an ecosystem approach has been really powerful for us. We have helped start a founder network of almost 300 founders building in our thesis area. And I think sometimes like the nonprofit or advocacy sector probably is not considered very adjacent to venture, but for us, like really cultivating everything around us, there's lots of great ideas. Only a small section of them are really appropriate for venture capital, but seeing the full picture and understanding everything that's out there and what should have philanthropic dollars against it and what should have maybe government funding against it and what should have venture funding has been really helpful. And Alana having done so much kind of political donations, nonprofit, Alex, like grants, debt, equity. I think she has a really 
well-developed sense of this can be a great idea, but it's not for this pocket of money. And I think that's really been helpful to us too, in terms of sourcing and building the network and kind of funneling companies in the right way. And what is your long-term vision for your firm? How do you plan to continue supporting startups in the future? That's a good question. I think a lot of times we think of ourselves almost growing up alongside our companies. I mentioned that when we started this back in 2018 and 19, we loved the idea and the thesis. I think intellectually, we were all drawn to it, Anna, Jen, and me. But we also were not confident there was like enough to invest in to really make a fund. And now we see so many interesting ideas and they're coming from all directions. It used to be it was mainly founders like us who were maybe somewhere in the middle of their career and they met a problem and they thought, okay, let me go fix this. It was not necessarily your typical kind of college dropout hoodie wearing startup founder who was like, I know childcare is so sexy. So that wasn't really a thing that happened. And even in the last five years, we've seen that change. So I think the types of founders that are drawn to things that we invest in across women's health, financial caregiving, childcare, elder care, DEI in the workplace, it's really a wide range of founders. And that's really cool. So the rate of company formation is growing. And these companies are growing up as we are too. So right now, we're mostly seed investors. But we know these are companies that are hopefully going to need like a great Series B and Series C lead. And I think we still feel like there maybe isn't enough attention in the growth stage. And so I think for us, our vision, hopefully, is that Spring Bank kind of grows up along with the companies and that we can continue to take advantage of this asymmetric information that we're building through our thesis, through our networks, to run a multi-stage fund and then be able to have a growth fund and an early stage fund and to really work on the thesis and take advantage of the network and the expertise that we're building at every stage to continue to get these companies to the stage where they are ready to tap public markets and have permanent capital and build really big businesses. I realized, by the way, that we did not answer your question about diligence or other parts of the process in terms of diligence. It's interesting because especially during COVID, we invest in a lot of teams we had never met in person and how to build the muscle to do that, I think was interesting since a lot of our early firm building was during that period. Obviously now we much prefer being able to spend time with founders in person, given that we do pre-seed through A, I think the diligence process looks a little bit different for each of those stages, right? You're going to expect a more fulsome data room and like a real sense of product market fit. And it's like a lot more numbers <laughs> at the A, whereas the pre-seed is much more of a, do we love this founder? Do we love this founding team? Do we think this space is big and interesting enough that they'll figure something out? And do they seem to show some decent sense and like how they're penciling out how the business could work? So we try to size it on that dimension and we spend Lots of time in person on Mondays as a team. That's how we operate. About two thirds of the time is spent on pipeline. And that'll be the last step in our process. We never do a deal where the whole team has not met the founders. So that'll often be the last stop for founders come visit. We sort of debate VCs, check up on just, we're tracking thousands and thousands of companies with a very small team. And then the back third of the time is for ops and process. And we're often doing this around Courtney's dining room table which makes things a lot easier. Venture capital is obviously something really risky. So how do you guys try to mitigate risk in your investments and what strategies do you use? One thing I think about a lot as a first-time fund manager, and to be honest, I have a husband who has a normal job with health insurance and that I get to have. There's certain like things that have mitigated my own personal risk. Because I think one thing I think about a lot, both for fund managers and for entrepreneurs, 
is like there's some fund managers and entrepreneurs who have the privilege of having either made a lot of money previously in their career, having come from family money or married into money or like all of these things that I think make it really easy to take risks because they're not actually that risky. And I think, first of all, I think we all need to be acknowledging that truth because it helps no one when we don't. And we think about that a lot with the founders we back to of, you know, who, for instance, we have founders who might come to us with a deal in the pre-seed that, that might be earlier along than other pre-seeds we look at because they weren't the kind of founders who could have raised their friends and family because that is not the community they come from. So anyway, point being like, let's all be really thoughtful about that risk means really different things and feels really different for different people. One thing I think about a lot personally, starting a fund while living in both the greatest, obviously, and also most expensive city in America is something a friend of the friend who runs a wonderful fund called Homebrew Hunter Walk has this great blog post that was geared towards founders. But I think about a lot around keeping your personal burn rate low. And the truth is, this is venture. You're supposed to make risky bets, not stupid bets, but high risk, high return bets. That's the job. And we can talk a little bit about how we mitigate that, but that is the actual job. And I think that part of how I can come into work every day, unstressed about doing that, I'm, always, I'm stressed, but not macro existentially stressed existentially stressed is in starting this like we really made the decision to keep our personal burn rate low we still have a ton of fun we do all of the great things that new york city offers but i think it keeps you a little more clear-headed and nimble when you have that room to maneuver so i just wanted to frame a little bit with that thinking about who has the privilege to tolerate risk and how do you buffer yourself a little bit around that but then on the more fun specific how do we think about risk i turn it over to courtney (laughs) I'm so glad you brought that up because I would not have thought of that frame, but we obviously talk about it amongst ourselves and certainly in my family, that's been a huge subject of conversation. So I think it's such an important point and you're right. We have to be transparent about that stuff, especially for people who are earlier in their career. On the more boring topic of fundraising, I think it's a really good point. I think venture has had some reputation. Some firms will say zeros don't matter. They don't matter at all. So you should never worry if a company goes out of business because zeros don't matter. The only thing that matters is the small fraction of companies that are going to go on to be unicorns or decacorns. And I think the truth is actually the environment is a little different right now. It's changed a lot. We're minting far fewer unicorns than we were a year or two ago and decacorns. And so I think that does change a little bit. The risk calculus is how we think about portfolio construction. I think it's also true that in our thesis areas, some of the traditional kind of venture-isms, like the very old now old Facebook thing of go fast and break things, like, no, nah, probably not. If you're running a children's mental health therapy company, probably that's not your mantra. And so for us in our thesis, there are certainly parts of our thesis where that is probably not the right frame. And it also extends then to our In terms of thinking about portfolio or risk rather at a portfolio level, uh, company level, I had this conversation just yesterday or two days ago, actually, with a really big asset allocator. And they used a frame that I really like, having talked to a lot about this yet. They they give each fund two scores. They have a merit score and a conviction score. And... I think it's a really interesting concept. So the merit score is they, they've analyzed the investment and on the face of what they have seen, do they think this is a good idea? Everything, right? They're assessing founders, they're assessing the product. How innovative is it? Is it innovative enough, but not so innovative that no one will switch, change their behavior, right? You're going through your investment criteria. 
And then they have a second score, which is a conviction score, which is a more around, they talk about like the truthiness of the founder and just the sort of overall maybe environment that the fund is operating in and make an assessment of how much conviction they have. So something can be really high merit, but low conviction and probably is not going to get done. And I actually think that's a really interesting way to think about risk from an investment standpoint. We kind of want to look at the company and the opportunity and the founder and all of our investment criteria, of which there are probably 12. And risk is not just like one more criteria. Risk actually is what you overlay at the end on top of the whole thing. And the frame that we often use is what do you have to believe? And that's a guiding light or thought around every investment memo we put together is what do you have to believe is going to happen in order for this investment to be successful, for this company to be successful? And it's different in each case, right? And depending on how hard that what you have to believe is, to me, that really ties to what is the risk of the investment, right? We're never going to do an investment where it doesn't check out on its merit score, right? But then there's this overlay of risk and what you have to believe and how significant is that what you have to believe? And that's things like the FDA is going to approve it. The government is not going to remove funding. They can sell into really large enterprise faster than other people. They have a moat around their intellectual property, which can't be copied. And then you can assess like, okay, how much do I really believe these? What do you have to believe? And how much risk is there in executing those? So a lot of thoughts there. Risk is obviously the key question in venture and early stage. And balancing that against the potential opportunity is the name of the game. And I think really giving risk the kind of comprehensive assessment that it deserves and really putting your finger on what exactly is risky here and what do I have to believe to tolerate that risk is the most important piece of the conversation. Incredible. And I love those two different perspectives that you both shared. To close off, I'd love to hear what advice you give to founders who are seeking funding, particularly those who maybe face additional barriers or biases in the investment process. There's no getting around the fact that I think for underrepresented founders, for first-time founders in this environment, it is, it's tougher. And so one is to play on timing appropriately, where I, that you need to be thinking about both the actual fund, fundraise and then how do you plan so that when you get into the fundraise, you can move quickly and be talking to the right folks and so, so that your fundraise has a sense of momentum. And so I think like this sort of, when I think about the pre-market of the fundraise, I think about a bunch of different pieces. One is doing a really careful top of the funnel spreadsheet of here's the 40 firms I want to target. Here's their name. Here's the partner I think I like. Here's the deals they've done that make me think they are a fit for me. Here's like what I can understand about their typical check sizes. And then, you know, that you're basically working LinkedIn to figure out who, if anyone can give you a warm intro to all these folks. And part of why making that sheet is really important and tracking it religiously and seeing which favors you can pull in for different intros is I sometimes see folks say, listen, I know almost every conversation I have is going to be a no, which unfortunately is true, but that's just like the law of the numbers of this game. So I'm going to have, I'm going to reach out to 2000 firms. And what ends up looking at looking is you're sending basically 2000 cold emails to firms, 90% of which are not appropriate. A lot of those emails do not get responded to. It's a frustrating experience, undoubtedly. And the real is like a much more targeted approach to 40 or 50 a list of those sort of funds that truly match your criteria. If a fund has never done a pre-seed before, don't send them your deck. <laughs> so it'd be making sure you really build that up, that you have you have your deck together. I certainly think underrepresented founders, there is more onus on, do they know their material cold? Do they know their numbers cold? Do they have a financial model that makes sense? 
I think the number of deals I see where it's a founder raising on reputation alone with almost no materials are certainly fewer these days. But obviously, I think if you are more underrepresented, fairly or unfairly, you have to show up more prepared. I mean, well, it's unfairly. We know that. But just to arm people with what they most need to succeed. And what I do think, I wish that we didn't live in like warm intro world, but I think we still very much do. So I think it's, I, I, we've certainly looked very closely at deals that have come in completely randomly on LinkedIn, Twitter DMs, just into our inbox. And we will always read those and consider them seriously. I do think typically warm intros get higher responses. Courtney, anything you would add? I think the only other thing I would add is there's a lot of resources for founders out there these days at a bit of a journey probably to differentiate the ones that are really helpful versus not really helpful. But I'm really encouraged at the number of folks out there who are building accelerators or non-equity accelerators. You don't have to give something up. Remote accelerators, right? I think that's a really big thing. If you're a founder who has some kind of caregiving responsibility or is anchored to a particular geography, like moving to San Francisco to do a, a boot camp or something is not really possible. But I think there's a lot of virtual ones now. To Alana's point, unfairly, but the truth is like there's a formula. Your deck should have this information in it. It should look great, right? In the days of Canva, like it should look great. A lot is accessible to folks. And so I think really going into a fundraise, there's a lot you can pick up from the environment. There's a lot you can pick up from the resources that are out there and a lot you can utilize that's pretty cheap to figure out how the game is played. And for better or worse, you need to fit the mold to just get into the first meeting. After that, I think there's lots of different diverse types of founders who can make it through the funnel. But getting that meeting and getting the chance to tell your story is really important. Setting yourself up for success, a great looking website, a great looking deck that has all the things is probably easier than it may look at first glance from the outside. And so I think figuring out how to get access to those resources, which are often available and often low cost is really important. Awesome. Thank you so much, both of you for coming on the podcast, sharing everything that you've learned through your journeys. And I really appreciate it. Thank you, Isabella, for doing the work you're doing. I think it's awesome. Hopefully a lot of people who hadn't really thought about venture are getting excited about it. So, Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and supporting Girls Who VC. Make sure to check out our website, girlswhovc.com, and follow us on social media at Girls Who VC. See you next time.